We have two scripture passages this morning, an Old Testament scripture passage and a New Testament scripture passage. Old Testament scripture passage is Genesis chapter 3, the first seven verses. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 5. And our New Testament scripture passage is John chapter 8, verse 42 through 47. And that can be found in your pew Bible on page 1663. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, by your spirit, help us to discern what is in your word, its truth, its goodness, and how it applies to our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings. For themselves. Turning now to John chapter 8. Jesus' discussion with the Jewish leaders. Verse 42 through 47. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He belongs to God. Here's what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan, wrote a number of works. And I want to share with you a quote from him this morning because I believe... It hits the nail on what exactly happens with our first parents in the Garden of Eden. What exactly happens with the Satan's deception? What exactly happens in the fall of man? Richard Baxter said, The most dangerous mistake that our souls are capable of is to take the creature for God and earth for heaven. The most dangerous mistake that our souls are capable of is to take the creature for God and earth for heaven. 
And hopefully what we'll see is that that's exactly what Adam and Eve do. They take the creature for God, not the serpent, themselves. And they trade earth for heaven. Our theme this morning, Christ came to free us from the tyranny of the devil and give us the liberty to love. Christ came to free us from the tyranny of the devil and give us the liberty to love. That's not being displayed perfectly here in Genesis chapter 3 in the first seven verses. Genesis chapter 3, the first seven verses, shows us how the state of man came to be that of fallen. But in time we see through the revelation of the redemption God has for us in Jesus Christ that this is what he is sent to do. The first thing we need to realize about Genesis chapter 3, the first seven verses, is that the serpent is about doing one thing and one thing only. He would like to introduce doubt in the mind of Adam and Eve concerning the word of God. He would like to introduce doubt about God's word in the minds of our first parents. And so, our three points today counteract that doubt. They're questions for us all because uh, Satan's way, Satan's uh, way that he goes about tempting Eve here is the way that he operates still today. And there's that saying, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. And application to this means that if we would like to make war, spiritual warfare against Satan, our great enemy, the serpent of old, as Revelation comes to tell us, the book of Revelation comes to tell us that this curious serpent in the garden is Satan himself, then we need to know his strategies. We need to know how he operates. We need to know the serpent's strategy and how to combat it. So our three points this morning. The first, do we trust the goodness of God's word? The second, do we trust the truthfulness of God's word? And the third is, do we trust the relevance or the application of God's word? So the first point is, do we trust the goodness of God's word? The first three verses introduce us to the serpent, his crafty, craftier than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. We need to realize is, at this point, what we have is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, married in paradise. The craftiness of the serpent brings a different tone to what we've read so far about all the things that are good in creation. It introduces into the story an enemy, someone who is untrustworthy, someone whose face value words may not mean exactly what they're saying. And we read that the serpent comes into the garden up to the woman and speaks. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent here is truly crafty. 
What he's doing here is he is implying that God's word, that what God has given Adam and Eve is, is insufficient. That he is withholding something from her. That his word is not actually a good word. Her answer is revealing, it's telling. Because, of course, we all know that what God said was that you can have any of the trees, the fruit of the trees of any of these in the garden, but you must not have the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Satan comes and says, did God really say you can't have any of the fruit? You can't have anything in the garden? I mean, you're going to starve to death. Look at all this beautiful fruit around here in the garden, and God is coming to you, and he's saying you can't have any of it? I mean, God's holding out on you. Is that really fair? Is God's word good? And the woman, she responds to the serpent, and, and she corrects him. She corrects him. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Pop quiz for you here this morning. Eve got it mostly right, but there's something she got wrong. Can anybody tell me what that is? You must not touch it. God didn't say you must not touch it. God said only you must not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could have climbed around on its branches, had a picnic below it. They could have swung from branch to branch. They could have done all number of things on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and still be within God's word, his command, his law. But Eve, here in this moment does something that is revealing. It reveals to us that the sly deception of the serpent is beginning to be at work in her heart because she adds to God's word. You see what I'm saying here? Legalism is adding requirements to God's word that he does not specify. Now, we can argue that it would be wise not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can argue that it would have been wise for them to steer clear of it, to stay away from it, to give it offense. But that's not what God commanded. And it's not simply that Eve, the woman, is saying it might be a good idea for us to not even touch it. No, it's that she's declaring that God had said not to touch it. That is what's wrong in that sentence. Yet nonetheless, we get the sense from the woman at this point that she sees and understands the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as something that is dangerous, something that is to be avoided. You can even get the idea that what she thinks of it is that it's poisonous, that even if she touches it, she'll die. 
Nonetheless, her expression of adding to the word of God begins to give you an idea that what she is thinking about God's word is that it's in a restrictive sense. It's keeping her from something. It's not good. And we can think of of God's law in this way all the time, can't we? God gave Adam and Eve a law. He said, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we hear the Ten Commandments, we we can get the same sense from it. We can think, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. God, that's all he is. God is the one who says you can't have something. That's all he does. He doesn't give you anything. He just says you can't have anything. Is that how God is? Remember what I said about Richard Baxter's quote. The most dangerous mistake that our souls are capable of is to take the creature for God and earth for heaven. As we talked about the first two chapters of Genesis, I communicated to you and I told you that what is going on in the Garden of Eden is that God is holding out to Adam and to Eve a beautiful promise of an incorruptible state of glory and exaltation, of a world filled with a beautiful paradise garden and image bearers who perfectly reflect the image of God full of glory and honor and majesty. That there is something greater for Adam and Eve to grasp than simply walking in the Garden of Eden with God. That there is a deeper fellowship and communion that is eternal and unchanging set out for them. That God is not simply a God who says don't. He's a God who says, I give you all things. And so when the serpent comes in our lives and he seeks to help us to get us to think differently about God and his word, to think that God is a God who's keeping things from us, a God who doesn't want what's best for us, a God who is saying you can't have these things, but not offering us anything in exchange, we must remember that God is a God who gives tremendous blessings, that all good and precious and perfect gifts come from the Father above. And that what God has promised us in heaven is much greater than anything this earth can give us. The goodness of God's word is a deterrent against the temptation of the devil. It's a deterrent against Satan's deception. But what about the truthfulness of God's word? The woman responds and she does her best to, to, to declare what the law of God is. And, but Satan, the serpent, he gains a little bit more confidence. A little bit more confidence that his seed of doubt has been placed into the mind of the woman. 
And she's beginning to think differently about God's word. And so he becomes more bold. He does not simply say, did God really say? As a question, a prompting of the woman to consider what it was that God had said and what it means for her. No, in verse 4, he outright declares God a liar. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. You will not surely die. God said to Adam, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And here it is, the lie from the father of lies himself, as Jesus declares, saying that God, what he said, is not true. God said, you will surely die. Satan says, you will not surely die. And that's the lie of every temptation, is it not? That if we give in to sin, it won't really hurt anybody. It won't really cause damage to yourself or to others. It isn't really that big of a deal. It isn't really a true harbinger, a bringer of death. So the question must be asked to us, not only do we trust the goodness of God's word, but do we trust the truthfulness of God's word? Because then Satan applies motive to God. Not only that God said that you would die is a lie, but there's a reason behind why God said you will surely die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's as if to say, I know that you're beginning to think that God is holding out on you, woman. But I want to show you a little bit more a false idea of God's motivation. God really is holding out on you. God is keeping from you something that will make you like him. We must ask ourselves the question, do we trust the goodness of God's word, but do we also trust the truthfulness of God's word? God's word comes to us and it declares, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And it's not until the seed of that lie is planted into the woman that she would even consider reaching her hand out and grabbing that fruit and taking a bite. Because the moment she begins to think to herself, well, God said I would surely die if I eat from the fruit. But the serpent is saying, I won't die. There's no choice. But every temptation that comes to us in this life is a reminder for us that Christ has come to give us to make us free from the tyranny of the devil and give us the liberty to love. Every temptation that comes to us 
in this life, in the life of a Christian, a redeemed believer who's united to Christ by true faith, presents to us a choice, a legitimate choice, a real choice. Do I give in to temptation, to these lies and the deception of the devil? Do I trust in the truthfulness of God's word? When the word of God comes to us and tells us that there is no temptation that is not common to man, that God in Jesus Christ has not given us a way out from under. You understand that, right? That when Christ came into this world, when he lived his life, he died on the cross, he was resurrected three days later, and he went to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, that a change happened in us, in our natures, that we are new creations, that we now have the freedom to live and the liberty to love God and to love others. And that when we sin, we are truly choosing to sin. That as regenerated new creations in Jesus Christ, when we sin, we are declaring that God's word is not true. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman heard this. She could have easily said, Why do I need to be like God? I'm already like God. I'm made in His image. And God has blessed me with plenty. I can eat, we can eat from any of these trees. We're here in in paradise. We get to go around naked and unashamed and enjoy fellowship, walking with God in this beautiful garden. What more could I want? God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. It's true that we must trust the goodness of God's word. We must trust the truthfulness of God's word. But do we trust the relevance of God's word? What do I mean by this? It's not only the case that as Christians we must believe that God's word is good. Its promises are giving us life and life abundant. That the way of God's word is better than any way that this world and our flesh can offer us. It's not only that we must accept the truthfulness of God's word. That it is true. Let every man be a liar and only God be true. But if both of those things don't combine to actually making us do or live or think differently, it means nothing. Here's something that will help you understand that. Satan knows God's word is good. Satan knows God's word is true. 
That's what makes him so capable of twisting it, of turning it, of slightly bending it. of setting it off just a little bit to give us place for our flesh. Do we trust the application of God's word? Here in this moment, our first parents, this is the woman's opportunity to say, God said, we should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said that if we keep this law, there is a better, more abundant, more wonderful life awaiting us. God said that if we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying we will die. And so the application, the relevance of that word would be to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to enjoy all the other blessings that God has given us. But the seed of doubt had been planted. The seed of the lie had been planted. And now it comes to fruition. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. First thing I want to say is that this sermon is not meant to turn into a female bashing session. Because it's my understanding that Adam stood by while a serpent talked to his wife and said nothing. That Adam's responsibility to guard the garden, to keep it, was to keep out this sly serpent who would come in and whisper lies to his wife. And if you remember redemptive history in the word of God, it is upon Adam that comes the guilt and responsibility of cursing, of bringing mankind into the curse. So Adam just stands by while the serpent lies to his wife, and then when she hands him some fruit, he says, okay, I'll eat some too. But what is to be said about verse 6 here? About the nature of sin. Temptation. Temptation appeals to us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, that is, that we seek to get something in this world that only God can provide. Physical. When she sees that the food is the, the fruit is good for food, she's trading heaven for earth. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. It's beautiful, it's appealing. 
captures our emotions, our feelings, temptation. And then it's also desirable for gaining wisdom. You see, here in this, she thinks that there's a word outside of God that will give her something that God cannot give. She's pursuing her spirituality. Apart from God. And when she ate from the tree, she did the most dangerous mistake that our souls are capable of. She took the creature for God. What she had was Satan says this. God says this. I choose. I'm now God. What do you mean by that, Carrie? Or there was a, a debate between R.C. Sproul and Greg Bonson some time ago where they were asked a very interesting question about this temptation in the garden, when it was that the woman sinned. And the question given was a provocative one. In fact, uh, Bonson called it the uh, heretical hypothetical because it's a question about what would the woman have done, what would have happened if it had gone this way. That's not how things went, but it can be a useful useful thinking tool, a useful way of thinking about our grounding and what we believe in and how we go about resisting temptation and what is at the heart of sin. And I believe what's at the heart of sin is autonomy, believing that we are separated from God, that we are not dependent upon Him in everything, that we can make up our own minds, And this is what they said. Greg Bonson said, It's not simply that she was led astray, but it's the very subtle reasoning by which she was led astray. And what was the subtle reasoning of Satan? Hath God said that? That is, he questioned the authority of God's self-attesting word. And I would answer as a presuppositionalist, it's a type of apologetics, as much as it is the heretical hypothetical, what if Eve would have done this, that, or the other? So there's, this is what's given. If Eve would have remained pure in the sense that, in the external sense that she did not eat the fruit, she didn't eat the fruit, but wouldn't have done it because she was afraid that she would lose that marvelous figure she was given at, at creation. That is to say, oh, she didn't want to eat it because she didn't want to gain any weight. Not because she wanted to obey God's word, but just because it wasn't appealing to her or she didn't want it. She would have in fact sinned because the question of the fruit wasn't the question of some magical potent or anything like that. The fruit did not have some magical property in it that when you ate from it, ooh, magically your eyes are open and this miraculous transformation happens in you. It is a question of obedience to the lordship of God alone. In this case, C.S. Lewis has made it so very clear. He's not a presuppositionalist. 
Lewis says that the, that the command was totally arbitrary on God's part. It wasn't because the fruit was poisoned or anything like that. It was just to see whether she would have an obedient frame of mind. And so I say that if she in fact didn't eat the fruit in order to save her figure, she would have then shown that she was using a criteria, a motivation, a grounding which was immoral because the real issue is whether she would be submissive to God's thoughts and not her own. So the hypothetical heretical Eve is offered the option to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by Satan. And she says, no, actually, that fruit doesn't look good to me. I don't like that color. I don't like that, uh, the way it's shaped. Um, it just doesn't appeal to me. I don't want that. She would still have sinned because she refused to eat it, not on the basis of God's authoritative, self-authoritative word, but on her own mind, her own Whim, her own basis, her own reasoning. When she chose to use her own reasoning, she made the creature God. And it's interesting. That when we go to a parallel in the New Testament and we hear of the temptation of Jesus Christ by Satan as he went out into the wilderness. Satan comes and he offers Jesus a variety of explanations, temptations, seeking to undermine God's word. Did God really say you are his son? Why don't you prove it? And Jesus' answer every time without pause or consideration or thought is to say, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Lord. It is written. Man shall worship God alone and serve no other. Satan comes, creeping around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He takes advantage of the flesh, our sinful nature that we still struggle against, and the world that's fallen and corrupt in so many ways. And he very slyly, with his cunning ways, seeks to put a seed of doubt in our minds. A seed of a lie that God is holding out on us. That his word is not good. That his promises are not so much greater than anything that we could find in this life. He seeks to help us along the path of thinking Maybe God's word isn't telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Maybe it's not 100% accurate. 
And he seeks to undermine our desire to apply the word of God to our lives, our hearts, our minds, our hands, our thoughts, our words, our actions. And it's in those moments that we must remember Christ came to free us from the tyranny of the devil and give us the liberty of love. This is a sad moment in human history when the woman and the man ate from the, free, ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and their eyes were opened to what? To shame. To the realization that they were naked and that they needed to be clothed. They needed to cover themselves. Christ comes and in his death and his burial and his resurrection, he clothes us in his righteousness. He covers our shame. And on the day of Pentecost, he pours out the Holy Spirit so that dwelling within us can be the one who brings us strength to put on the armor of God and take up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and fight against Satan and his deception and his lies. And in that power of the Holy Spirit, we now have the liberty to love, to love God and to love our neighbor, to live out the law of love, to love your neighbor as yourself. to pursue the life that God destined Adam and Eve for, apart from the fall. And to know that there is a day coming when Satan and all his demons will be cast into the pit of hell and all the sin sickness that remains with us will be purified We'll be raised in our resurrection bodies and we will live forever with no sin, no corruption and give glory to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I caution you against the most dangerous mistake our souls are capable of to take the creature for God and earth for heaven. May we always know that God is God. Let every man be a liar and only God be true. And may we know that what God has promised for us in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, is so much greater than anything Satan could give us or the pleasures of sin could bring us in this life. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for freeing us in Jesus Christ from the tyranny of the devil and given us the liberty, the freedom to love. We pray, Lord, that you would protect us from temptation, keep us grounded in your word. May we see the goodness of it, the truthfulness of it, and the way it applies to our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us from sin, help us to live lives of godliness and holiness, that declare to people that there's a kingdom other than the kingdom of this world that's ruled over by the God of this age. And it's a greater kingdom 
with blessings and life instead of death and curses. We pray, Lord, for all those who are still under the sway of the serpent, who are blinded by him, the word which is planted in them and then ripped out by the devil himself, who is a liar, the father of lies and a murderer from the start. We pray, Lord, that you would reach through and save them, draw them to your son, bring them to faith in him. And may we, as your people, as your church, continue to push against the gates of Hades, knowing that we are promised true and final and lasting victory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.